Um, he's going to be speaking today. Let's make his job easy, be interactive with him, and I'm going to stop talking. Good job, Chris. Thanks, Jairus. And I love the encouragement to interact with me. That's always, always an okay thing for you guys to do. Um, thank you, Mike and Sue and the Good Neighbor team. Guys, I do hope that um, it seems like, uh, from all of the like partnerships and things we're hearing, it seems like the community is going to be there. Uh, again, we can't predict that with 100% uh, accuracy. It would be great if uh, our community was there as well. And so we'd love to see everybody uh, in this room there. Um, okay, so I'm going to jump right in. I've got so much to cover, and I want to start with probably like 16 caveats uh, because of what I'm talking about today. First of all, if you don't know, I am talking about um, sex and sexuality and talking about uh, how Jesus introduced a new sexual ethic when he came onto the scene in the first century. And so parents specifically, uh, if you want to rethink where your kids are right now, on the explicitness meter, it's not super high, uh, but it will be higher than your average Sunday. So I just want to give you that disclaimer. You can make the decision for your kids. And then the other thing I want to say is the goal of this morning um, is one that we all are um, benefiting or learning something or convicted of something. This message, I believe, equally applies to married, single, gay, straight, young, old, Everybody in this room, um, I'm not preaching just to married people or just to single people, uh, the goal of this message is we're talking about um, this at a 10,000 foot level, and so this applies to all of us. And, and where this is coming from, I'm going to do a little bit of introduction. If you weren't here last week, uh, and I don't say this about every sermon I preach, but like it's worth going back and listening last week. It was mostly introduction into why a biblical worldview matters where we're at right now in this cultural moment, and, um, and it set the stage for a lot of what I'm talking about today in the next three weeks that we're having conversations, and it all comes from an article written by a guy named Tim Keller, who's a pastor in New York, and he wrote an article about how the Christian church that kind of exploded in the first, second, third century, um, how it exploded in the midst of Roman paganism and even persecution. And he said specifically there were five practices that were so countercultural of that community and of that church that were, one, a little bit ostracized, but also somewhat strangely beautiful to the rest of the world. And, and so we're going through those five things. Last week I touched on um, radical forgiveness and reconciliation. Uh, the church uh, also was a community of multiracial and multiethnic unity. The church was famous for its hospitality to the poor. The church was a church or a community that was committed to the sanctity of life, all life, unborn, refugee, elderly. And then finally today, uh, it was a community that was committed to the sexual counterculture of Jesus and what he introduced. So we're tackling super light and fluffy topics over the next few weeks. Yeah, awkward laughs. Think about preparing for it. That's what I have to deal with. Um, so we're talking about a series of conversations around here. And here's what's so interesting, just briefly. If you plot these on our very simplistic two-party system, it's like, man, these two seem progressive, these two seem more liberal, and one of them, radical forgiveness, is just otherworldly. And so is it possible, and again, this is crazy, is it possible that Jesus is above our two-party system? Is it possible that the worldview of Jesus doesn't fit into anything that we have constructed ourselves? I'm going to say yes, and I'm going to say that most of the problems that we encounter are solved in the middle. Now, the middle is bold. The middle doesn't mean I take a passive stance on anything. The middle says, no, I'm going to go here because that's what Jesus said, but I'm also willing to go there. 
And so we just want to humbly submit and be a community that says maybe we're going to join in the middle. And I referenced Dr. King and how he didn't go to any of his extremist critiques, but he said, no, this is the direction I'm going to go. And a reminder that they don't build statues in the National Mall of people that weren't successful. And so he did it. I believe Jesus did it. And so we just want to humbly look at all of these issues and say, okay, I wonder if Jesus was onto something. Uh, So much of this series comes out of a passage, just actually one uh, verse that Paul wrote in Romans. And, And I want us to keep this in mind as we tackle today's topic. Paul, in Romans 12, verse 2, he says, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Three questions come out of this for me. Uh, Actually, two questions and a statement. Number one, and don't answer this quickly. Number one, are you willing to sacrifice your preferences and your desires for his? If Jesus says something that goes against your political persuasion or your way you think the world should be, are you willing to submit your desires and preferences to his? Number two, this is more of a statement. It seems like conforming to the pattern of this world affects my ability to know God's will. So Paul says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. It seems like conforming to the pattern of this world, the thought processes of this world, affect my ability to know what God's will is. And number three, and this is probably more of a question that the world is asking us, not we're asking ourselves, but is it possible for you to renew your mind and to still be kind? And I didn't know I was going to rhyme there. That was good. Keep that one. Is it po- and I think the world's asking us this, right? Is it possible, Christian, for you to renew your mind? And is it also possible that you still engage with the rest of us in a loving way? And I believe the answer is absolutely yes, because our model and our king did it when he was here on earth. So what do we do? And this is the question this morning. What do we do when modern sex ethics and the teachings of Jesus in the early church collide? Where do we go? What do we do? How do we wrestle through these things? And I believe um, that Jesus introduced specifically four things that we're going to talk about this morning. Four things. Monogamy, equality, fidelity, and purity. Monogamy, equality, fidelity, and purity. And before I jump in, one last caveat. Everybody in this room has sexual baggage. Everybody in this room. So if you think, man, I think he probably chose this sermon for me. I didn't. I'm so sorry. You're not that special. I chose it for me. I chose it for you, and I chose it for you and you. Everybody, everybody has sexual baggage. It looks different. It might be bigger or smaller for some people, but everybody in this room has sexual baggage. So let's just start at an even playing field as we have this conversation, okay? Are you ready? Whoa. I can call the band up right now. Are you ready to talk about sex? All right. Number one, monogamy. Matthew 5, uh, 27, this is Jesus in his teaching on the kingdom of heaven. He says, you have heard it said you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus, super passive on sexual sin, he says, if your right eye causes you to, to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. Super passive. Now, let's build some context around that. Let's not jump straight to exactly what he's saying, but Jesus lays out something where it was very difficult to follow the pattern of the law. And what Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount is he takes a very difficult standard and he makes it impossible. And he makes it impossible, one, so we see we actually need him. We can't do this on our own. So Jesus takes a difficult standard, no adultery, no murder. I mean, hopefully those aren't 
super difficult. And then he elevates it. No anger and no lust. That's crazy. That's impossible. And so Jesus takes very serious the standard that he sets before us. And then he says, I know you're going to mess up. I know you can't do this on your own. So Jesus cares very much about our, our bodies and what we do with them. Kyle Harper, who is an author, he says, uh, because the problem of sex is inevitably tied to the problem of Christianity's relation to the world, it is a tension that will surface during any great readjustment in the relationship between Christianity and the world. So follow that. He's saying when there starts to be readjustments between the cultural values and Christian values, that's when you're going to start to see some stuff kick up. Guys, I believe that we are in one of those moments. We're in one of those moments where the world is shifting in all kinds of different ways, and the temptation is going to be to look the same to the rest of the world. So I'm going to shift with them. But Jesus doesn't shift. Jesus doesn't change. Jesus plants his flag in what he says, and then he also offers unbelievable grace to us. So this idea of, number one, monogamy is introduced first in Genesis 2.24, God says that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. So God says that in Genesis 2, 24. Jesus affirms that in Matthew 19. Paul also affirms that very same verse. And so there seems to be, there seems to be a very clear teaching from the father, the son, and one of the early church writers saying, no, this is supposed to be just a one-on-one thing. The monogamy is the standard that I have set. Which begs the question, okay, what do I do, especially if I'm single, what do I do with my desires, because we can't just ignore the fact that there are desires in us. And so the answer the church has given, especially in the last 20 or 30 years, is fear them. Fear your desire. You should fear the desire that's inside of you. And if we look at the statistics of infidelity, addiction, divorce, that doesn't seem to be working even inside of the church. Fearing your desire is not working. And so the culture responded, and they said, okay, whatever you guys have going, that's outdated. Feed your desire. I want you to feed your desire. But then if you look at the statistics for the rest of the world, that's probably even worse. And so there's something that's not working with feeding our desires or fearing our desires. And I believe Jesus gives this radical middle way where he says, give me your desires. Give me your desires, and I will form you into the image of who I am. We don't need to fear them. We also don't want to feed them. Jesus says, give me your desires, and I will form you into my image. So monogamy wasn't a new idea, but it was a new idea for everyone. Remember, Jesus came onto the scene when Rome was ruling the world, and monogamy was an expectation at the time for wives and for slaves. So Jesus introduced this, and he said, no, no, actually, this is for everyone. So not only did he introduce monogamy, but he introduced equality. Tim Shalley's, who's an author, writes about the Christian sexual ethic, and he says, it was more egalitarian, treating all people as equal, and rejecting the double standards of gender and of social status. So the world that Jesus introduced, or the world that Jesus was living in was the Roman world, and Roman sexuality was absolutely dominated by this idea of dominance. You can have sex, you can even, you can even rape someone, as long as they are below you. If you see something, man, woman, child, slave, whatever it is, as long as they're below you, you can take it. Dominance was the name of the game. Now, on the other end, women, wives that were caught in adultery, were charged with a crime. And actually, Caesar Augustus, if you remember him from Luke 2, Caesar Augustus made it illegal to forgive your wife of adultery. 
the standards were not the same. Kevin DeYoung writes that the sexual escapades of young men, provided they were not with other married women, were almost entirely inconsequential. This is the world that Jesus introduced, or Jesus was introduced to. And the thing that he introduced back to the world was something completely different. In Ephesians 5, so Paul speaks to this, Peter speaks to this. In Ephesians 5, verse 21, Paul says, he's talking about marriage. And if you're reading through Ephesians, you know, 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, it's challenging. You get to chapter 5 as a free married man, and you read, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That might be the most mind-blowing thing you've read thus far. It almost would have to have been a typo. Me, like a married man, a free married, I have to submit to my wife? No, I don't think so. And then he makes it clear later on. It says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's crazy. That is crazy. And then Peter writes something similar. 1 Peter 3, he says, husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner, weaker means physically there, look it up, as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. This was a radical idea. Equality was a radical idea because women in a moment, wives in a moment went from property to something so valuable that they could hinder my prayers. If I didn't treat my wife well, I could have my prayers hindered. The escalation that Jesus did of specifically women, slaves, and children was paramount. It was uh, incomparable to anything else that was going on at the time. Jesus introduced equality into marriage and into society where he said, actually, no, 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 we're all going to be equal in this. Now, the biblical view was absolutely demeaning to Roman masculinity. Part of the reason that Christians felt so threatening to the Roman world, specifically to free men, was because this ethic was threatening and it was demeaning to Roman masculinity. But Paul and Peter and Jesus all say the same thing. No, no, no. We're going to do this thing equally. Now, I found this interesting. Um, as I was kind of looking at what Jesus did and the great leveling that he did, uh, what's interesting is Jesus was progressive in how conservative he was, okay? Classic Jesus. He was progressive in how conservative he was. Men's rights were up here. Women's rights were down here. And instead of Jesus saying, okay, women, you should have all the same rights as men. What are you doing? Sleep with a slave, sleep with a prostitute, whoever you want. Jesus said, actually, now we got to dial this back. This is where I've always intended it to be. So monogamy wasn't just something that um, Jesus said, yeah, I want that for women. He's like, actually, this was my intention all along. Jesus was progressive in how conservative he was. And sometimes progress actually does look like regress. The old ways aren't always the wrong ways. And so Jesus introduces something that was conservative, but it was progressive and scandalous because he gave value to women, to slaves, and to children. Number three, fidelity. We doing okay? Okay. Number three, fidelity. At the time, sex was just a commodity. It was something that was purely a physical act. So I did it with my spouse or my slave or a kid. It doesn't matter. And then Jesus comes on and he says, actually, no, this, this was intended to give yourself, not just physically, but emotionally to someone else. Now, here's what's crazy. The science totally backs this up now. I mean, we have all kinds of data on what actually happens with that. And all of the emotional bondage, or uh, uh, sorry, bonding that happens. <laughs> Band. 
Hey, if this is the worst that happens. Uh, I need to give a fake email address right now. Okay, so Jesus, Jesus introduced this, and I'm just vamping right now because I forget exactly what I was saying. Uh, ah, fidelity, that's where we were. Jesus introduced this idea of maybe this is more than just physical. And what's crazy, and this is just how I think the Bible works, the data and the science is now catching up to that saying, oh yeah, this, this is more than just a physical act. And so fidelity, this idea of fidelity actually says this, that freedom comes through restraint. Freedom comes through restraint. It is countercultural. It is the cross-shaped world. It's, it's what Jesus introduced when he said, this is the upside-down kingdom. And he says, the best way to get freedom is actually through restraint. And he introduced this idea of fidelity and a way to use sex as, as a way to bond spouses together, not just a physical act. Number four, we're going to spend the most time on this one, is purity. First uh, Thessalonians 4 says, it is God's will that you should be sanctified that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. And then verse seven, he says, for God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. God has called us to purity. God's called us to purity. And here's the thing, purity is beautiful. And we, especially in the last couple decades, we have made purity a burden. Purity is, is beautiful, but it's been made into a burden. It's been made into a culture. Instead of what Paul lays out through the ethic of Jesus is, no, this was actually supposed to be something that was so beautiful. And we've put equations around purity. One equation in the church that we've said is, if I can line up my moral standards plus my willpower, that's going to get me the freedom that I want. My moral standards plus my willpower and that it's the, it's the equation of purity culture, it's the equation of religion. My moral standards plus my willpower can equal the freedom that I long for. And again, the, the statistics say the church has not gotten this right. This isn't working, guys. And so the world, specifically the world 50 years ago during the sexual revolution that I think we're still living on the end of, said, okay, this isn't working. This is old school. I got a new equation for you. If you have a desire and if, if there's consent, then it's good to go. Desire plus consent. And if we're looking at that equation, we're again seeing, man, that's not working out for them either. So there has to be some other equation that we're missing because both of these that we're seeing have both led to shame and to bondage. To shame and to bondage. And, uh, and the question is, what do I do with my desire? How do I manage my desire? How do I manage my desire? And surely I'm supposed to use some level of Willpower, and I want to put a bookmark there, and I want to tell a story um, of just this week. So I have Catherine and I have a niece uh, named Reagan, and today is her fourth birthday. So Reagan, hi, happy birthday! I hope you're not watching this. <laughs> that would be terrible, Uncle Chris. And uh, but Megan, uh, Catherine's sister, texted the four of us. So Megan and her husband Chad, Catherine and I this week, and she said, I think it was on Monday or Tuesday. Uh, Reagan every uh, day has an hour of quiet playtime. So she gets to play for an hour, but it needs to be quiet. And um, Megan, so her mom, walked in uh, at the end of quiet playtime this, uh, I think on Monday, and Reagan was eating a marshmallow, which we all know is a no-no for quiet playtime, right? She's not supposed to be eating marshmallows. And it took a while, Megan said, but she kind of coaxed an apology out of Reagan, and, uh, and then she asked this question of Reagan. Uh, Reagan, how many marshmallows did you eat? And Reagan said, just one. 
And then I love this question. Megan said, okay, Reagan, if Jesus were here, like with us physically, how many marshmallows would he say that you ate? And, uh, and I want to get this right. Uh, Reagan said three, but that's not true. Three, but, but he's wrong. That's not true. And uh, we can laugh. Let's laugh for a second at the poor theology of Reagan. And then we're reminded, oh, wait, we do that sometimes too. How, did, how many did you eat one? Jesus, we're here three, but that's not true. And so Megan goes on and she explains um, why, the big why of why we don't eat marshmallows, uh, how Jesus is in this with her. And so Megan has a little bit of a parenting moment. And then the real issue with the marshmallows wasn't just the sugar rush, but it's that the marshmallows are on the top shelf of the pantry. And so really dangerous for Reagan to climb up there. And so after Megan gets done talking through this with Reagan, she shows her the marshmallows and said, okay, Reagan, you're not supposed to have these, but I'm going to put these on the bottom shelf now because more than anything, I can't have you climbing up there to get them. And Reagan says this, no, mama, put them in someplace else higher so I don't sneak one. She's brilliant. So Reagan, and, and, and I, I believe she understands the vision of why I don't eat marshmallows and that Jesus is with me in it. But Reagan, four years old, I mean, guys, so simplistic, so primitive. Reagan has the ability to say, no, I'm going to need more boundaries between me and that thing. Are you following? I'm going to need more. Uh, Mama, don't put them there. I see where you're putting them. I need it to go somewhere else because I need more obstacles in my way. I, I know Jesus is with me. I know I have a vision for why I don't eat marshmallows, but I'm going to need you to put them somewhere else because I know when temptation hits, an hour 50 or minute 57 of quiet playtime, I know I'm going to go to that bottom shelf. I need you to put them somewhere where I can't get them. Does anybody else follow or empathize every now and then with Reagan? Anybody ever empathize with me? I got the vision, and I know the Holy Spirit is with me, and I'm going to need you to put that somewhere else. I'm going to need to have a few more boundaries between me and that thing. I want to jump uh, back for a second. I want to talk about what I believe is the gateway to sexual impurity, which in our day is pornography. 51% of men, 32% of women in today's generation have viewed porn by the age of 12. 71% of teens hide that from their parents. In a world of sexual abuse, so I told an awful story last week, in a world of sexual abuse, 88% of scenes in pornography uh, contain some sort of physical aggression. A survey found of 16 to 18-year-olds today, 16 to 18-year-olds, uh, almost every single one of them said, I learned how to have sex from pornography. And many women, many of the women said, I've been pressured to play out scenes from uh, something that someone saw in pornography. Guys, this is the opposite of what Jesus introduced. This is the opposite of the equality that he brought. Data is now showing that uh, when you see something in an aroused state, your, your brain makes a connection. So they're finding that in aroused states, as people see acts of violence, your brain says, okay, I guess these two things go together. Pleasure and violence go together. In a world of, of, of sexual uh, violence, this, this is forming us into the opposite image of what Jesus asked us for. One in five mobile searches are pornography. One in five youth pastors and one in seven lead pastors view porn regularly. 64% of Christian men and 15% of Christian women said they watched pornography in the last month. So the only solace that I can take from this is if you're hearing this, you are not alone. Oh my gosh, you are not alone. And what the enemy will do is he will come to you and he will say, you're the only one. You are the only one that follows Jesus and struggles with anything in this realm. You're the only one. And it's shameful. You should be ashamed of yourself. 
Pornography, unfortunately, has become um, the assumption and not the exception. And also, all of the science and all of the data, and I could go on for about 30 more minutes, but I can't, on the data of pornography, of um, specifically hookup apps and um, cohabitation before marriage, all of the data, all of the science is pointing to the same thing. And I want to make science and Christianity viable again because I actually think that they are, and we can't ignore the science here, of where this is leading us. And the remarkable ability that pornography has to form us is unbelievable. The connections that it can make in our brains is unbelievable. The Pope says this, the problem with pornography is not that it shows us too much of a person, but too little. It's not that it shows us too much of a person, but it shows us too little. And um, and so I want to say this, and I've tried to find a way to say this more lightly, but if this is, is your thing, if this is a struggle in your life, and you still have unfiltered internet access, that is stupid. And I've, I've searched all week for another word. It is stupid. Why are we putting the marshmallows on the bottom shelf? And you need to determine what your thing is. Maybe it's not pornography, but it's hookup culture. Maybe you've got to get a roommate that's going to hold you accountable. I don't know what links you go to, but I know we don't put it on the bottom shelf. Because even a four-year-old knows if you put it there, I'm probably going to go there. What are the boundaries that you need? I, I have a vision for my sexuality. I, um, I believe that the Holy Spirit is with me, but one of the biggest game changers I've made is years ago, I just got rid of all unfiltered internet, internet access. Everything that could be red flagged goes to a couple friends. And man, I'll tell you, that is helpful. Why, if this is a struggle in your world, why you have unfiltered internet access is beyond me. It is putting the marshmallows on the bottom shelf. Jesus introduced a new sexual ethic to the world. And the thing that I think we get caught up with uh, in the church often is, man, this seems really restrictive. And we've lost the beauty of it. We've lost the beauty of what Jesus did intend. And we've lost the ability to see that sexual formation is holistic. Jesus is wanting to form us into his image. And this plays a big part of it. Now, making a commitment... Knowing that God is with you is not enough. There do need to be some restrictions, some boundaries, but I want to start there. And I want to start with a new equation that I think is better than the world's and better than what we've had in the last few generations. I want to start with this. It's vision plus power plus practice. I need a vision for how I'm being formed into the image of Jesus, specifically around my sexuality. I need to know the power of the Holy Spirit is with me. If not, we're just doing this on our own. The power of God is with me. And then, and it's after those two, and then I set up the practices to figure out what boundaries do I need to make in my life. But if you start with the practices, it's religion, it's purity culture, it's pressure, and it's probably setting you up for failure. But you've got to start with a vision of your sexuality and a knowledge of the power of the Holy Spirit being inside of you. Then, then we start to set up the practices around that. The question that I want us to ask this morning is, who am I becoming? Who am I becoming? We often ask, what am I doing? But I want to change the question, who am I becoming with the practices, with the the actions that I'm doing right now, with the thought life that I have right now? Who am I becoming? Uh, A few weeks ago, I uh, I was in counseling, um, because I do that, and it's a good idea. And uh, I was with my counselor, and we were talking about something completely different, but he... uh, he had me go to the first time I remembered being rejected. And, and I thought about this uh, a lot 
in the last 10 years of like, when was the first time I felt lonely or rejected? And I remember it was in fifth grade, and I was in a classroom, and I was, uh, my friends were kind of the cool kids, and it's Matt and Spencer. I won't say their last names, because I'm sure 20 years later, they listened to all my sermons. <laughs> and uh, Matt and Spencer both had older um, siblings, and I did not, and I grew up in the church, and my dad hadn't had the talk with me yet, so I didn't know anything. And they started, ma- they started having a conversation about something, and they figured out, I don't know what they're talking about. And they started making fun of me. And, uh, and I remember, it's the first time I ever felt rejected. And as my counselor's leading me through this memory, I, um, I had a vision, like, and I... Uh, a vision that I don't get very often. Like, I actually was with Jesus. And uh, if you think this is bad, you should have seen me in counseling. I uh, was a puddle. And I had a vision. I was sitting in my chair in fifth grade, and Matt and Spencer were at the front right of the room, and uh, they were near the door. And they, you know, they were kind of asking me to come with them. And I've seen that picture a lot before because I always felt like I had a decision to stay or to go. And, uh, and I went. I went with them, but I saw what I did, and I saw what I've done for the last 22 years since then. I looked over to the left side of the room, and, uh, and I saw Jesus. And I've never, I've never seen that part before. And Jesus was standing there, and I got up out of my desk, and this is what I did um, in, the, in reality, but I got up out of my desk in my vision, and I went to the right side of the room, but I never broke eye contact with Jesus. And I'm, I'm, I'm talking to him, and I'm inviting him, and I said, Jesus, you should come with me. We can probably save them. Um, this is in my vision. And uh, I said, Jesus, you're not relevant over there. And uh, so I get up, and I, I walk to the right side of the room, but never breaking eye contact with Jesus. But Jesus never moves. And, um, and I realized that Jesus didn't want, he didn't want my relevance. He wanted my innocence. And, uh, and I remember in that moment, I, uh, I'd never had this thought before, but this was my first invitation into compromise. And, and this is how I've compromised for the last 22 years of my life. I've been a Christian while doing it, and I've gone towards the way of the world, but I've invited Jesus into it. Because if he puts a stamp of approval on it, if he comes over here, it's good evangelism. If he comes over here, we can be relevant together. But Jesus never moved. And I remember as I was kind of in this world, I remember thinking, this was the first time I ever compromised. And this mirrors my life in a way that I do compromise. I compromise by going that direction and inviting Jesus into it. And I had this thought, and I want to submit it to you. Jesus is not your kindred spirit. Jesus is not your kindred spirit. You cannot assume whatever you want, he goes with you. Whatever you do, he wants to do also. And in a worldview where Jesus is your kindred spirit, says, surely he wants me to fit in. Surely he wants me to be happy. Surely he wants to join me in my compromise. That's when Jesus is your your kindred spirit, the worldview where he fits into whatever we want. But when Jesus is king, it looks different. When Jesus is king, when that is your worldview, you start to say things like, I don't I don't care wherever he is, that's where I am. I, I want to see the things he sees. I want to do the things he does. I want to go the places that he goes. When Jesus is your king, when that's your worldview, everything changes. Jesus never invites us into compromise. He never invites us into compromise because our innocence is always worth more than his relevance. And the irony above all ironies 
is that that place is where you most fit in. The left side of the room is where you most fit in. The left side of the room is where I most fit in. I went over here because I thought that was the place of the least amount of loneliness. And actually, the the crazy part of the kingdom of God is if I would have gone that way, I would have never been lonely again. I would have never been rejected again. I would have never, because nothing could touch me if I'm with that man. And instead, I invited that man to come with me. It's mirrored my life for the last 22 years. I've seen increasing freedom in it. But I realized that was the first moment I chose to compromise my faith. It's the first moment I chose to compromise my relationship with Jesus. And so um, this morning, I want to remind you, we all have sexual baggage. And, and as we end, I want to I remind you, there's people to pray um, on all four corners. And also, if I asked you to stand up earlier, can you just stand up really quick? I know, um, I know not everybody wants to like get prayer or respond publicly, but look around. These are people that I've asked to just say, hey, are you available after service? Or if you have their phone number to text them. Not everybody wants to respond publicly to this, but you do need to respond. If there's something in your life, you do need to respond. You can sit down. Thank you. Guys, Jesus is inviting us into a wild adventure. But it's an adventure that leads to purity, not compromise. And, uh, and I want to encourage us as we respond um, to get prayer. The front is always open. And again, we're starting at a level playing field. Don't be embarrassed by responding. We all have something to repent of or to remember. The front is open. There's prayer in all four corners. We have the Lord's table for anyone that is a follower of Jesus that wants to remember his sacrifice. But the last thing I want to say this morning is sexual sin often starts with one compromise after another. You're not evil. You're not just an addict. It's likely started with one compromise that led to another that led to another. And today we lay down our compromises. Today we say, no, I don't want that to be a part of my life any longer. So let's worship and let's respond. The front is open. Prayer is open. I want to respond and I want to lay down compromise because Jesus is king and Jesus is worth it.